Pennsylvania. And Chase Byers is with us today from Fishers, Indiana, over near Indianapolis. Good afternoon, Chase. Afternoon, Jeff. It's good to be on today. We uh, we don't have our knight in shining armor in today, do we? We don't. We don't. We are missing Joe Works today. Um, but we'll we'll try to plug along as best we can without him. So um, we're in Acts chapter 12 today, right? That's right. Acts 12. I've really been enjoying us just kind of walking through the text in the book of Acts. And we've seen a lot of different changes in God's church, even in these first 11 chapters. Um, but one consistent thread throughout the whole book is that it keeps growing and spreading and growing and spreading. Been introduced to a lot of different characters uh, throughout the book of Acts so far. I kind of like how Luke will zero in on these different people at different times. And so uh, we're going to see him do that with Peter in Acts 10, 11, and part of chapter 12 as well. Yeah. And then from there on, it's really just the Paul story from the rest of Acts. Yeah, you talk about the the, the kingdom growing, the body of Christ growing here. Uh, what Most recently, we saw in Acts chapters 10 and 11, um, the event with Peter going to the household of Cornelius in Caesarea and opening the door to the Gentiles. Um, of course, it's, it's God doing that. It's God through the Holy Spirit doing that. Um, but uh, that's that's a major watershed moment. And really, if you look at the book of Acts as a whole, and you talk about the different characters, and there are a lot of people we get to know, but the first part focuses on the work of Peter amongst the Gentiles, and the last part focuses on Paul. I'm sorry. First part focuses on Peter among the Jews, and the last part focuses on Paul among the Gentiles. But in the in the middle, the area where we are right now, there's kind of an overlap. Uh, we 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 talk about Paul in chapter nine. We came back to Peter in chapters ten and eleven. Um, now in chapter twelve, we're going to talk about Peter, and then we'll get to chapter thirteen, and we'll focus in on Paul. Peter will come back into play in chapter fifteen. But as you said, for the most part, starting with chapter thirteen on we're looking at paul's work mm -hmm. that's right uh jeff i think you had something you wanted to share with us since we're talking about this region of the country it's uh kind of in popular news right now isn't it yeah and i'm and maybe popular isn't it's very in, it's interesting news it's sad news for a lot of people over in turkey and syria this earthquake that has killed i don't know what the death toll is now the last i heard it was up over two thousand. i think um, but it's just a huge earthquake and I'm going to share a screen here, uh, because this is in the area that we're talking about. And we're going to be talking about as we continue in the book of Acts. So right here, I'm going to put a map on screen and, uh, looks Chase, good. can you see it? Okay. So, you know, um, we're, of course, here's Jerusalem down here and here's Caesarea, uh, in Acts chapter uh, 12, we're going to be down here in, in Jerusalem. But we were recently talking about Barnabas going up to Antioch, Antioch of Syria up here, and getting Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, to help him. And they labored there together, I think it was for a year and a half in Antioch mm -hmm. teaching. Well, this earthquake, let's just take a look at this whole map here and, and zero in on this particular area and we'll enlarge it and and this area here now if you can kind of keep your focus here's the island of cyprus for example and here's the island of cyprus so here's a, a modern map and this is the epicenter of the earthquake here 
And the these little colored squares, here's the, the color coding down here, they're indicating different places in the region and to what degree they could feel the earthquake as they as you get further away from the epicenter and to what degree there was damage. And you'll notice down here in Aleppo, there's fairly significant damage. They felt it very heavy. And way on down here toward the northern parts of what had been part of the Old Testament Israelite nation. But if we overlay our previous map with this one, then you can see Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas labored together. And we're going to be talking about Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby next week when we get in. We may get to it today. I don't know. When Paul travels to those cities, Paul and Barnabas do. And right here is the epicenter. And then not very far away, Tarsus, which was Saul's hometown. And you'll notice the color coding here. There's a good bit of reporting of feeling the earthquake here and even down here. So here's Antioch of Syria. And over here is the modern city of Aleppo. And you see a dark color there indicating fairly strong damage and uh, feeling it very strongly. And there's a scale of miles down here, and it's 50 miles from here to here. And I didn't do this carefully, although I guess I could grab my ruler here. And with my ruler, I could put that right there. And I could say, okay, that looks like about a little less than two and a half centimeters. And if I measure from Tarsus to the epicenter, I've got seven centimeters. So you're talking um, about 150 miles from the epicenter down to Tarsus, for example. So th that, that'll just kind of relate what we're seeing in the news today um, with these lands that we're talking about. Earthquakes were very prominent in a lot, are very frequent in a lot of these areas that we're studying in the New Testament. Okay. Mm -hmm. You want to get us started okay. in the text of the book of Acts? Yeah, sure. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 12. Might remind everybody that chapter 11 ended with a guy named Agabus reporting that there was going to be a famine that was going to go throughout the, the churches there in the Judea or Jerusalem region. And so um, there's some relief being picked up by Paul and other people for this congregation. But chapter 12 begins in verse 1 by saying, About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. So, um, so this Herod chase... We read mm -hmm. about Herod a lot of times in the Bible, uh, but they're not all the same person, right? Yeah, that's right. So th this really started bothering me after a while because <laughs> you read all about all these Herods and it, it kind of gets a little hairy, pun intended there, with trying to figure out which one it is. But I'll tell you what, it, it really, it breaks down pretty simply. Um, okay. If you go even to the very first Herod in the scriptures, it would be Herod the Great. Um, he was the king of like all of Palestine in 37 to 4 BC. So he's but at the top as of a lot of kings here. did. So, yeah, he's at the top here. He's at the top of the chart. All and right. as a lot of ancient kings do, they got a lot of wives, don't they, Jeff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so all these blue names are the different women that this Herod had married or been with at one point. And what comes with a lot of wives normally? A lot of kids, right? A lot of children. 
And so he started having children with all these different women. And to no surprise, some of these sons of his would get the name Herod. Well, this big dog, Herod, divides his kingdom up into four parts. And that's why some of these guys are referred to as tetrarchs, like in Luke 3 and in other places as well. But they were literally just a ruler of a fourth part. And so you had a Herod who was responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. That was Herod Antipas that you would find right here. Um, and then we're reading about a Herod who would be called the Herod Agrippa I, who is responsible for decapitating James here. But as we keep reading in the book of Acts, he's going to end up having a son named Herod Agrippa II that we see in Acts 25 and um, so forth and so on. So there's a lot of different Herods, but for the sake of clarity, this is the one that we're talking about. Okay, uh, so This would have been the, the grandson of Herod the Great. So the Herod the Great who was who was ruling when Jesus was born, that's Herod the Great. Right. And then when, when Jesus is an adult and John the Baptist is confronting a Herod who has married his brother's wife, that is Herod Antipas. Correct. Okay. And, and then uh, the Herod that, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. And then the Herod that's ruling this area that we're talking about right now is Herod Agrippa the first. Okay. And All right. so this would, that would have been the nephew of the Herod that was there when Jesus was alive. Okay. All right. Um, so what you read to us just a moment ago, um, he, he, for whatever reason, he kills James, the brother of John. So that's the first apostle to be killed. The first of the 12, well, Judas killed himself, but James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their brothers, James is killed. Now, later on, we read about a James who's very prominent in the book of Acts, who I believe also wrote the book of James. That's a different James. That's one of Jesus' brothers. But this James, who's killed here, he's one of the apostles. And, and the Jews, this would be the unbelieving Jews, they were happy about this. And so Herod decides, well, I'm going to do the same thing to Peter. Why does he delay? Why does he not just kill Peter right away? You know, I don't really know the answer to that. Oh, sorry. You're referring to what it says in verse um, in verse 4. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned... Uh, Oh, sorry. I'm confusing this with a completely different text. Do you think he did it because he feared? Do you think he feared the people? Is that what you think it probably is? I, I, think, uh, that, riot, perhaps? I, I think that it's the same reason that they didn't want to take Jesus during the Passover when they crucified Jesus. They ended up crucifying him the next morning after Jesus observed the Passover. But at first they were trying to avoid that because you could offend some people to, to be killing somebody in the midst of this great holy feast kind of thing. And I, that sounds like what you have here in verse four, where it says, when he had taken him, he put him in prison and delivered him to the four quaternions of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him forth to the people. So let's have our great feast and celebration and and not mar it, not, you know, not deal with the ugliness of killing somebody. I mean, we want to kill him, but, you know, let's separate it from our observance of the Passover. And then I'll, I'll make you guys happy. You were happy when I killed James. Now I'll kill Peter for you. Yeah, and I, I do think that's the end goal. I don't think Peter is just going to be in prison forever here. I think the plan is to have Peter executed the same way that he did James. He's intending, and, he's intending to bring him forth to the people. Yeah, okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so here, here's what I want to say um, about that, though. I mean, let's not just skip over that this 
this would have really affected the local church uh, or affected all of the churches. I mean, James, I would imagine just as much as some of the other guys was a pillar here. And you also just think emotionally, the toll that I believe this would have taken on some of the other apostles. I mean, let's not forget that whenever Peter and his brother Andrew are called, Jesus walks a little bit further down the Sea of Galilee and he calls James and John. And we learned that they were all fishing companions. I mean, yeah. these were guys who knew each other, who had worked together. And I, so if you're Peter, I can't imagine what emotions he's having whenever he's sitting there in the cell as he's one mourning the loss of one of his best friends, James. But secondly, likely contemplating, you know, this is going to happen to me here in just a couple of days. And so it really would be a tough situation for Peter. Well, you say one of his best friends. We, we remember that James and John and Peter were the three who are mentioned on various occasions, the transfiguration being one of them in the garden, the night before he's crucified being another. Uh, he when, takes him in to, to raise up that girl, if I'm not that's mistaken. That's right. That's right. He, the, when, when only three were present with Jesus, it was James and Peter and, and John or James and John and Peter. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think you 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 make a, a valid point here. There's an interesting thing. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but anybody who reads the King James version, where all the other translations say Passover in verse four, the King James says Easter. And, oh, is that where it says Easter? I couldn't remember where it was. Yeah, yeah, and and it's just that that is an anachronism. That is reading back into the first century something that came to exist later and didn't exist in the first century this idea of an annual observance of, of Jesus' death. Um, and, and the King James does that. I think what they were, I'm just guessing, but I think what they were doing is uh, in the Anglican church of the 1600s, people knew Easter. Um, they didn't pay so much attention to Passover, but Easter and Passover are about the same time of year. Of course, Jesus is crucified at the time of Passover. So I think they just decided to substitute in the name for their holy day that they kept uh, that was about the same time as the day referred to here in the in the 17, 17th century, in the 1600s. Yeah. All right, well, anyway. To, uh, I just wanted to say in verse 5, as, as you're sitting here thinking about the church, I mean, think about the prayers that they would have been offering up on behalf of Peter as he's in prison, knowing that, it's inevitable that his death is going to happen soon. Um, and the church has a responsibility to be praying for brethren who are in tough, troublesome times. And so they're doing what they, the only thing they really could do at this moment. They, they're that, praying for him. That's an important thing to point out because we're going to come back to that in just a minute in the text. They, they've been Not gathering and praying for him. Go ahead. And, and I just further emphasize, that's the only thing they could do. There is no record of them getting together a crusade or an army no. to go and free no. Peter. I no. mean, they, no. they, they all understood that this was the risk. This was the a part of being a Christian that you could right. lose your life doing this. Right. And right. so uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm probably beating the dead horse here. But no, I, I think there's just some rich application there. there. There really is, because we, we see this concept in the New Testament where people got it. They're part of a spiritual kingdom. And that spiritual kingdom is not going to go to physical war with earthly kingdoms or with earthly governments. And they're not going to resort to um, earthly means to deal with things that they can't deal with in, in earthly ways. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to put their trust That's in right. God and they're going to pray to God. And I've just seen too many cases over the years where people say the right things. Yes, we're uh, in the world, but we're not of the world. Yes, we're part of a spiritual kingdom. 
and then something happens in their lives and all of a sudden they just bail on relying on God and they resort to uh, legal recourse or um, ungodly means to address the problem. So, okay. Yep. So in verse uh, six, when Herod was about to bring him forth, the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains and guards before the door kept the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shined in the cell. And he smote Peter on the side and awoke him saying, rise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, gird yourself and bind on your sandals. And he did so. And he says to him, cast your garment about you and follow me. I think that that's humorous that it gives us the picture of him you know punching peter or whacking peter or poking peter say peter peter get up yeah <laughs> I, that's, uh, is there also something to be said about the fact that he is even able to sleep in a situation like this uh, does that possibly show his his trust and his hope in god i realize he could just be so exhausted at this point but uh well, man, I, I just think He's been in custody a few days at this point, but but still, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Um, verse uh, nine it says he went out and followed, and he knew not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. You ever had a dream where you kind of halfway thought you were awake, but you halfway thought you were dreaming, or have you had a dream where you were conscious you were dreaming? Yeah. Or in Peter's case, how about the fact that he's actually had a dream before where God was talking to him or, or an angel was communicating something important to him. And so uh, I don't really blame him for, you know, trying to figure out exactly what this is. Yeah. Is, is this really happening or not? Um, yeah. Well, pick it up for us in verse 10 and take us down through verse 11. Just two verses. Yes, sir. After the after they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city which opened uh, to them by itself. And they went outside and passed one street and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all the Jewish people expected. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get verses 12 and um, go through 15. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, mm -hmm. where many had assembled and they were praying there. He knocked at the door of the outer gate and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. So, uh, or sorry, did you say down through no, 16? One more, one more. Verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true. And they said, it, it's his angel. There's several things in this text, but let's get that last verse first. What was it that we read back in verse five that the church was doing, the disciples were doing? They were praying fervently to God for him. And so the implication I think is, is they're praying for him to get out. However, and yeah. you can kind of, Jeff, can you kind of hear the prayers that might've been worded or said, oh, yeah. God, if it be your will, yeah. uh, just yeah. somehow, somehow send an angel and get them out of that, you know, yeah. out of that situation. And we've prayed like that for other people yeah. before too. Yeah. God, we know that we don't see how this can be resolved, but we put our trust in you and so forth and so on. And, and then 
then they're told Peter's at the gate and it can't be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not, and not only that, it's, you know, it's a young girl, you know, and they're just like, ah, you know, Rhoda, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And it is interesting too, that they think it's his angel. They're like, oh, well, it just must be his angel. Is yeah. the implication there that they just think that Peter's dead at that point? Is that the idea? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. And um, so then backing up in the text just a little bit, but you know, there's, there's a lesson there for us. We sometimes pray the right things, but we don't really believe, or at least on some level, we're not expecting that God can do what we're asking or that he will. And um, you know, we don't dictate God's will, but at the same time, we need to pray with the confidence that God can. And if it's his will, he will. And so, so we come back and a couple of other things to notice in the text. You mentioned uh, the mother of John Mark. This is the house of Mary. Yeah. She's the mother of John, whose name is Mark. Who is this John Mark? Yeah. So you correct me if I'm wrong. I think this is the first time we're seeing him in the book of Acts. We're going to see some more of him, but this should be the first time we're seeing of him. Right. So right. we we know just from a historical standpoint that this is actually the same John called Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark, um, you know, Matthew, right. Mark, Luke, and John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was a young disciple of Jesus. Um, he was around that same time that Jesus had walked. We're not 100% sure if he had seen Jesus um, there is some debate on if he was that young man in an act or sorry in Mark 14 um, that runs away naked. But uh, we're not 100 percent sure if he had actually met Jesus or not. But we know from this text and later in the book of Acts that he was a close companion of Peter and also Paul's. And so he kind of ran in the same circles that the apostles ran in. So. That's a, as far as the scriptures go, I think about all we know, he's made reference. Is it at the end of second Peter or is it first Peter? Um, my, my son, my son, John Mark. Yeah. He's also mentioned in Colossians four and I'm trying to remember which of the Peters it is. I'll turn over there real quickly. Uh, at the end of first Peter, I'm thinking. Um, yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. I shouldn't have Peter said that. 5, yeah. First Peter five thirteen. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so my, my point is, is he was he was well known among the apostles. He was just another early disciple of Jesus. And he is going to we're going to we're going to see him again at the end of this chapter. And then we're going to see him again in Acts chapter uh, 15. Um, and in fact, I will also see him mentioned early on in Acts chapter 13. So we'll keep him and in mind. Timothy 4. OK, there you go. Um, this I want to mention just an architect architectural detail. Uh, it's not all that important, but. The disciples are gathered in the house of Mary. There's, there's this mention of him knocking at the door of the gate. The language there is such that it speaks of a fairly substantial kind of gate, not the kind of gate that just everybody would have. It suggests that Mary was somewhat well-to-do, had a somewhat... Um, uh, a more than normal house, which might explain why the, the disciples were gathered there. She had room in, in her house. Just a little detail. Um, mm -hmm. And they're gathered there. And then, of course, as you say, Rhoda, this maid, answers the, the door and she recognized Peter's voice, but she's so excited she forgets to let him in and runs and tells everybody else. And they say she's crazy. 
So let's pick up the reading in verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. <laughs> hey, hey, you forgot about me. When they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace. Some of this language, if you just pause and think about it, beckoning with the hand. So normally you would think beckoning to be like, like this. Yeah. Calling and calling with your hand. Come here. But he's beckoning to to quiet down. So he's doing like this, you know, y'all calm down, settle down, you know, beckoning with the hand and um, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him forth out of the prison. And he said, tell these things unto James and to the brethren. Now, who is this James? This is not the James the apostle. That's been killed. He's been killed. Yeah, this is likely the same James that you're referencing in James or in Acts chapter 15, and also the one that probably wrote the book of James, James the brother of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And he departed and went to another place. In verse 18, now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter, you can imagine. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the guards. Uh, I can imagine what was involved in examining the guards. Um, putting them through some some unpleasantries to get the truth out of them, suspecting that maybe they had uh, not done their duty. And then he commanded that they should be put to death. Uh, later on, Chase, we're going to read about the jailer in Philippi, uh, Philippi when Paul and Silas uh, are in prison. And when he, that jailer thinks the prisoners have escaped, he's going to start to kill himself. And, and right. you see why somebody might do that, because when you let the prisoners escape, you end up forfeiting your life. Yep. yep. That's exactly and he right. went down from Judea to Caesarea, Caesarea and tarried there. So Peter goes to Caesarea. Anything you want to notice in that section? No, I mean, it makes sense. Peter's urgency, number one, to continue knocking. Hey, let me in. I mean, he has no idea if they're after him or what it looks like. Um, so. It, it all just makes contextual sense to me. And I, I love that Luke records it so thoroughly for us. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put my map back on screen. This first one that we had up sure. to uh, give us a little geography. So Tyre is um, up here and right here is Tyre. Peter has Sidon's settled. right next to it, right? Right. Sidon is right next to Tyre. It's not on this particular map. Um, and uh, so that Tyre and Sidon are going to get mentioned here in verse 20. You want to take us from verse 20 through verse 23? Yeah, sure. So Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, Dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. And the assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a God and not of a man. And at once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Okay. So there's some, some details I want to review here. First of all, it mentions his special raiment on this particular day. This translation I have says arrayed himself in royal apparel. What did yours say? Uh, mine said, uh, uh, sorry, I was looking at something else. Uh, uh, dressed in royal robes. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. He makes a speech, an oration. The people proclaim him to be a god. 
and he accepted that and then he is smitten and then he's eaten of worms so the wait go ahead i got a i actually have a legitimate question because i i know i've looked into it at some point but i can't remember so my translation says together they presented themselves before him and having one over blastus who was in charge of the king's bedroom uh new american standard says one over blastus the king's chamberlain what what's this guy's job what is that i don't know i never had paid any attention to it i just took it to be some uh, some official in his administration i hadn't thought about the the particular job that he might have um okay all right i'm sorry we don't have to spend time on that i just said do you have any do you have any insights or are you just curious no 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 i was legitimately curious but i think you're right it's somebody in the king's inner circle here that that has some kind of influence yeah um so you know what uh, I'll, I'll look at that um i see why somebody might suspect that it might have had to do with being in charge of the bedroom but um i'm really not all that familiar with that particular word um so i will i will look at it uh but in any event so what we have here is these people um have are there they they fell out they've fallen out of favor with herod and yet these people have right. tried and they're dependent upon herod's kindnesses for their their food and so they they've ingratiated themselves to this blastus who works in the administration of herod and they have gotten an opportunity to stand before herod and so when he comes out dressed in his finery and makes this speech they're trying to flatter him and they cry out the voice of a god and not of a man and then of course god doesn't tolerate that he's it says immediately an angel lord smote him but then it says he was eaten of worms and that what that sounds like is something happened to him right then but then there's a process of him being eaten by worms and he dies uh now this is one of those incidents that is is recorded elsewhere in history josephus the first century jewish historian writes about this incident so I, i'm going to read from josephus if that's all right yeah i'm asking for your permission yeah sorry yes go right ahead jeff <laughs> okay all right all right um so it says after the completion of the third year of his reign over the whole of judea agrippa that's this herod herod agrippa came to the city of caesarea which had been previously which previously had been called strato's tower so so if we look back at our map i don't have it on screen yet uh still but i'll put it back on screen um so herod has come to let's see can you see it yet yeah yes, herod sir. has come to caesarea and these people from tyre and sidon have come down there and so now what's what happens well josephus says um here he celebrated spectacles in honor of caesar knowing that these had been instituted instituted as a kind of festival on behalf of caesar's well-being for this occasion there were gathered a large number of men who held office or had advanced to some rank in the kingdom on the second day of the spectacles clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous he entered the theater at daybreak so luke said described described him as being attired in his royal apparel uh josephus goes into a little bit more detail and then it says when he went in at daybreak into the theater there the silver in his garment illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it 
straightway his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a god. May you be propitious to us, they added, and if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. Um, well, that's that's all consistent with the picture we have in the book of Acts. Verse uh, Josephus goes on. Shortly thereafter, he looked up and saw an owl purchased, uh, perched on a rope over his head. Now, Luke doesn't mention the owl. At once, recognizing this is a harbinger of woes, just as it had been once, or just as it had once been a good tidings, he felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, and that was intense from the start. If you have a bad case of parasites, of worms eating you from the inside, where are you likely to feel it? Yeah, in your gut, in your stomach. Leaping up, he said to his friends, I, a God in your eyes, am now bidden to lay down my life, for fate brings immediate <laughs> reputation of the lying words lately addressed to me. And he goes on God. and he dies. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, oftentimes we will see things uh, in the Bible that are also described in historical accounts, and there'll be some differences in Matthew and Mark and Luke. You'll see some differences. What is interesting, though, is the degree to which you see the same points being made. Um, the and same. What wouldn't it make? And wouldn't it make sense that a public official like this death would be recorded in history outside of the Bible? Yeah, yeah that, that makes perfect sense to me. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, I'll also say that. I'll I'll say this, Jeff, uh, just about this section too. Obviously, learning something here that. We don't put anyone up on the pedestal that only God deserves to be on. And it kind of, I think, explains a reaction from Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 14 that we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. Whenever yes. they're in Lystra yes. and there's a group of people that end up calling them gods for some miracles they were able to do. And Paul and uh, Barnabas go, no, 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 no. You know, please stop, 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 stop. Uh, don't don't call us that. Excellent and God's people. God's people need to understand where God is and where we are. Yeah. And um, too many times mankind, they put themselves on the same pedestal of, of, of God. And this is a great demonstration of how God truly feels about that. Yeah, that's one of the great themes in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, you see God just opposed to man's pride where he exalts himself. And in the book of Daniel, you see Nebuchadnezzar. Look at this great Babylon, which I have built. And that's his undoing. And God brings him down humbles him and lets him know that God's in charge. And, and God is not going to tolerate uh, man exalting himself as if, as if he is in control. And that's the problem we have in the world today. When man exalts his own understanding, when he exalts his knowledge of science, when he exalts his ability to fix all the problems in the world, God's going to bring us down. And there's a manifold of ways you kind of see that. I mean, doesn't Colossians use the language whose God is their belly? Um, is that, if I'm not mistaken? Philippians 3, I think is what you're thinking okay. about. Okay. Yeah, uh, you're, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's all right. Philippians 3, verse but, uh, 19, whose end is perdition, whose God is the belly, and whose glory yeah. is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And just to make the point that it, it doesn't mean that if you, it, it, this applies much further than just saying I'm a God, but whenever we're living as if we are God, 
you see that pride and that arrogance. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, then we get to verse 24 and 25. The word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. So that's referring back to the end of chapter 11 when Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, had traveled south from Antioch. I'm going to put this map back on the screen since I've got it handy. Mm -hmm. They had traveled south from Antioch to Jerusalem to take funds to relieve the saints who were uh, going to be in need on account of a famine. They had traveled from Antioch down to Jerusalem. And so now Luke picks back up with what's going on with them and says they returned from Jerusalem. So they're returning back up here to Antioch of Syria and when they had fulfilled their service or their administration. And they took with them. John, whose surname was Mark. So this John Mark, um, down here in, uh, who's mentioned in, in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12, now he goes with Paul and Barnabas, or with Saul and Barnabas, up to Antioch of Syria. And uh, he'll get mentioned again in chapter 13. All right, we're ready to go on yeah. into chapter 13. You got something else you want to talk about here? Just that we've pointed them out before, but there's a little progress statements like this pretty consistently through the book of Acts, like in verse 24, the word of God is spreading and multiplying. You know, it's not slowing down. It's it's in fact spreading. Right. Good. Good. Uh, chapter 13, verse one. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. And it mentions several Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, the foster brother of Herod, the Tetrarch and Saul. And of course, it's the first and the last of those names, Barnabas and Saul, who are going to be working together again. They worked together in Antioch back in chapter 11. They're going to, and they worked together to make this trip down to Jerusalem and back up to Antioch. And now they're going to work together as they uh, take the gospel to Gentiles throughout Turkey and uh, the island of Cyprus. Don't you love the kingdom-focused mindset that the church in Antioch had? Whenever we were reading about them last week in chapter 11, you saw how much emphasis they put on teaching and preaching with the local congregation, but also in their local area. And then in chapter 13, you see them putting an emphasis on spreading the gospel even further from there. Yep. And so I know we have Christians that listen to this, but I think it's important to see that the local church has a responsibility to be spreading the gospel locally, but also if you're able to have a hand in spreading it globally. As well. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Good. Um, I, I like to point out here that in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Um, yeah. And it, it puts those together. And this is one of several passages that taken as a group suggests that there was a class of teachers uh, who would naturally be mentioned along with prophets because they taught by the Spirit. They taught with direct in uh, direct assistance by the Holy Spirit. They taught by revelation, in other words. Mm -hmm. And so the prophet is somebody who would speak God's word, but now you've got somebody apparently who has the ability to explicate, to explain, to teach. Right. Uh, then we come yeah. on to verse... I, I, I appreciate... Yeah. I appreciate you pointing that out, Jeff, because when we think of prophet, we only want to think of someone that is telling the future. Mm -hmm. um, but it needs to be understood their role was more just imparting what God's word is, which, you know, is a, is a prophecy. So I, I appreciate you pointing that out. You know, and, and since we're sitting on this just for a minute, I'll mention 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 29, where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. 
And he mentions a number of them, including in verse 28, uh, apostles, secondly, prophets, thirdly, teachers. And so you have teachers put right in there in that category, along with apostles and, and prophets. And then right after that, it talks about miracles and gifts of healings and so on. Again, mm -hmm. uh, shoring up the idea that there was a class of teachers who taught by uh, the Holy Spirit. And then he asks in verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? And of course, those are rhetorical questions. The answer to all of those is no, not everybody's an apostle. Not everybody is a teacher in this sense. Um, yeah. So, okay, we come and, back to Acts 13, yes. I mean, and while we're making that tangent, in Acts 4.11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so they all had this specific role to build up God's church. Yeah, that's Ephesians. Yeah, I know you meant Ephesians. I think you said Acts 4.11. It's Ephesians 4.11. Oh, I did? Sorry. About I think that. you did. I know you know it's Ephesians. I, I think I heard Acts, but yeah. anyway. Um, yeah. All right. So then we come to Acts 13, verse 2. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. You know, we've got four minutes, Chase. Let's see if we can get to what you referred to before. You were talking about the fact that um, when Herod accepted being called a God, he was, he was smitten. And uh, you were connecting that with what's going to happen here in this next... Uh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm a no. chapter. I'm a chapter. You just, not there yet. you just made me really nervous. I was like, <laughs> I don't know if we can get to chapter 14. Yeah, that's chapter 14. We're just in chapter 13. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, let's that's still, okay. let's get a little, let's get this next paragraph here if we can. Uh, start in verse four and just get the first, uh, just get four through six. And uh, uh, let's get four through seven and we'll take a look at the map again. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was the, with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. All right, so here's Antioch where they start, and then they come down to the port city of Seleucia, or Seleucia, and from there they sail to Cyprus. You may remember, Chase, that Barnabas was from Cyprus. Back in Acts. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Acts chapter 4, verse 36. He's a Levite. He's a man of mm -hmm. Cyprus by race. Um, yeah, sure enough. And then you have the city of Salamis, which would have been about here, and on the western end, the city of Paphos. So they go through that city, and then they encounter this, encounter this proconsul, Sergius Paulus. But there's been this other character mentioned, this sorcerer, or false prophet named Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas. So what happens? Do you want to continue on with verse 8 and get us down through verse 12, and we'll see if we can do that in two minutes? Elemis, the sorcerer, uh, that was the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elemis. Uh, I've heard it said so many times now, I don't even know how to say it. 
Verse 10, and said, you were full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't know. There are there's several things I mentioned. This is the first time Saul is called Paul. Mm -hmm. And, um, yep. you know, we, we get in trouble if we speculate too much, but Saul is a Jewish name. Paul would be a similar sounding Greek name, only starting with P instead of S, so to speak. And, and he has the same name. It is the same name as the Sergius Paulus, and some make a connection there and uh, suspect that that has something to do with Paul choosing the name Paul. I don't know. Uh, maybe um, there's a rationale that's offered for that. But in any event, um, this this is a prominent official in the Roman Empire. Prominent. Uh, he's a proconsul here in, in Cyprus, and he ends up being a believer. Um, and Paul's ability to deal with the sorcerer uh, was impressive. Yes, it is. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, well, if you have a last minute, uh, last comment, let's make it and then let's wrap it up. We're, we're ready to wrap it up. Okay. We're out of time. So we'll have to pick it up. We might have a thing or two to come back and talk about uh, this last paragraph next week, but otherwise we'll pick it up in verse 13 and move forward with their travel. Thank you all for listening today.